0: You found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you today from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to interview Jesse Rizendine, who is an award winning speaker, a best selling author and a world renowned transformational coach. Jesse will be speaking to us today from Santa Barbara, California. Jesse is a big fan of finding the silver lining in any situation. He educates and empowers individuals and organizations to move beyond their limitations. And he has worked with thousands of people around the world, business leaders, Hollywood celebrities, mental health professionals, entrepreneurs, Medical professionals and educators have utilized Jesse's services to break through limiting beliefs, uncover their unique purpose, and create fulfilled lives. In addition, Jesse has personally mentored nearly 2,000 people on their healing journeys after the loss of loved ones. I'm looking forward to interviewing Jesse about his 1,000 challenge and its ability to bring about positive change in the world his healing from loss course, and his stress-relieving and anxiety-reducing self-love training, which each of you in our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience is doing right now by opening your hearts and minds to Jesse's healing, transformational coaching. Hey, Jesse, welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast.
1: Irene, happy Monday, and I meant to check in with you. How has the weather been? It sounded like you had some crazy weather on the East Coast last week.
0: We did, but today is beautiful. I know, I know. We've got lots of floods, and we've got things that they're cleaning up and all of that kind of thing, but from where I'm perched here in West Orange, the sun is shining, and it's a pretty day.
1: Well, send some of that water over to us in California. Yeah, you
0: could use it, right? (laughs) And you've got fires going over there. Oh, my God. How far are you from the fires?
1: You know, uh, this is one of those rare years where I'm actually a little ways away, so it hasn't altered much, but typically we have at least one within hundred, you know, 50 to hundred miles of me almost every year. It seems like the last That's several years. Terrible. I've been evacuated from my house several times because of fire. It's, it's the fire season here. It used to be an actual season. out it's just year round.
0: I mean, climate change, anyone? Hello? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Do you have smoke through your air and all that other stuff? Are you seeing the residual?
1: Not this time, but we've had it before here where it, it's on my life. I mean, you could go outside, you couldn't see your hand in front of your nose. The smoke was so thick. The ash was falling that much.
0: Well, I have to know people whose home was burned to the ground last, a couple of summers ago. Oh. Terrible. Terrible. Well, we're going to bring sunshine and rain and ha- good rain and good sunshine into everyone's lives with this interview. How's that, Jesse?
1: I love it. We'll add some rainbows, too.
0: And rainbows. So let me ask you our first, my first question so everyone can get to know you. What was your life like before June of 2009? And then what happened to turn your life upside down?
1: You know, it was one of those lives that was probably a, a, probably a typical of most 20-something-year-olds. I felt like I had everything figured out. I felt like I had life all the problems solved. I had a good group of friends. I had a good career. I had a good relationship. It seemed like life was so simple. The most pressing question was going to be where was I going to spend my Friday night? and considering some of the you know trips I wanted to take in the future and feeling like I just I, I remember it was funny. I remember having this moment even in May of that year, of thinking, wow, I had I really had life figured out. And there was nothing that was going to stop me from accomplishing my goals. I had been through some challenging stuff. I felt like I'd grown tremendously as an individual. I felt like I was getting becoming a little bit more conscious and also really beginning to understand the notion of being more entrepreneurial. And Little did I know, June 2009, it was going to shake things up as life always does and say, well, no, no, no. You think you have it all figured out? Let me let me show you. There's some stuff you need to learn, young man. Okay, so but your life
0: was like set. Everything was like cool at that moment, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then what happened to you to turn your life upside down that year?
1: Yes. On June 15th, 2009, my one of my closest friends, Gabe, took his life. Oh God! And the way it's, it transpired, I was at the time I would go to the library to work in the afternoon. I would, you know, just on kind of some other stuff. And I'd use the internet there because it would get me out of my, my home and force me to really concentrate. And I remember sitting there and I received a text message from them that said, I love you all. And I had this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. And it was one of those feelings that you just know, it's, it's such a sickening feeling that, you know, there's some truth behind it. And I called a couple friends. And none of them had received the message. So I started to, I remember I stood up, had closed my laptop, was getting ready to leave. But then, once two people had validated they had not received the message, I, I started saying, No, you know, maybe I'm just overreacting. I sat back down, opened my laptop back up. And then I remember sitting there, Irene, and thinking to myself, Jesse, you know what is about to happen right now. If you don't go, you will probably regret it the rest of your life because the other voice was saying, well, you know, you don't want to overact. You want to make a scene. You don't want to this. You don't want to that.
0: Was he suicidal or
1: anything like that? He had gone through a difficult breakup before, you know, a few weeks before, but it was just something. It was a feeling. I mean, it was, it was such a, it was such a, it was such an intense feeling. It was as if, you know, whatever somebody's belief system is God, universe, spirit, source. It was as if Whomever it was, God was shaking me by the shoulders and saying, Jeff, there's some sort of action you need to take here. I finally packed up, got out of there. I had a friend come and pick me up, and we went looking for Gabe. And we finally got to him. And he, how how it transpired is he basically had set the day up for me to be the one to find him. (sighs) And I got to him right after he had pulled the trigger.
0: Oh my God. And
1: for the next several minutes, we were on the phone with 911 trying to do CPR, trying to stop the bleeding and everything. And oh my gosh. Several hours after that, he was pronounced brain dead in the hospital. Oh my gosh. He was removed from life support about 24 hours after that. What a shock. Yeah, it was, it was for me too, it was such a, It was such, not that one loss is more profound or intense necessarily than the other. I think each loss, having gone through a number of them now at this point, it comes with its own emotional burden. And I also think each comes with its own emotional lessons and just lessons in general that there are for us to learn should we so choose. But for me, what was so, you know, really so prominent about that one is it was the first real, real loss I had gone through in the sense of a death. I had, I had gone through losses in terms of in a relationship. I had lost a, a grandmother I wasn't particularly close to when I was 19. I had gone through some devastating losses of pets as a child. But to go through that one, and it was, it was one of a young person. It was, it was so violent. It was so shocking. It was so, and then there were so many pieces that were connected to it too, because you had these close circles of friends that didn't know how to relate to one another. I'll never forget, Irene, about two days after that happened, I had tried to go to work for the first time, and a friend of mine named Melanie was there, and she was waiting for me outside, and when I saw her, she had tears in her eyes, and she just gave me the biggest hug, and she kind of helped, she moved back, and we were sitting there holding each other, you know, about six, eight inches apart, looking at each other, and she said, I want to help you so bad, but I just don't know what to do. And I was so thankful for her honesty because I realized so many people wanted to help, but so few actually knew what to do. You know, we can understand there's like layers of this where we can understand life and death to an extent, especially when people are a little bit older, but when they're younger, it might be a little bit harder to do. And then it's even harder when it's somebody who's taking their life, it's even harder when it's somebody who you're very close to who's taking their life and you're the one that's trying to fight them. You know, and so the the, the realm of human experience is removed by degree after degree after degree which was making it harder and harder and harder for people to be able to relate to me and try to understand what I was going through. And that was one of the most challenging and difficult things of that time. It was sorting through my own emotions with it, the, the, the trauma of it all, but also trying to, to reestablish how do, I, how do I reconnect with people? How do I bond with people, especially when some of my closest people couldn't quite understand what I had just gone through and what I was continuing to go through?
0: changes all your relation. It changes most of, I, I shouldn't say all, but I would say most of all of your relationships. I found that when my husband died, you know, yeah. Jesse, you went to Haiti for the 2010 earthquake recovery. That was a year later. And that inspiring mission renewed your sense of purpose. Would you like to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In a very, again, you know, God, universe, trusting in the, the lessons that they want to provide for us Shortly after Gabe passed, and by shortly, I mean, maybe four or five days afterwards, uh, my best friend, Paul, and I had gone up to this spot and hung out. We're just talking about Gabe and life. And then we came back to my house and we were standing on the balcony. And he told me he wanted to share with me this idea he had had about going and doing disaster relief. And his idea was always, he said, you know, after seeing what happened in Katrina and another big typhoon around the world, he said, I realized that governments are often too slow to respond. And he said, my vision, my dream has always been to be able to get a small group of people who can get in there right away to disaster zones, provide aid and support and help, and then start to help just before the big government comes in. And then all the resources come flooding in. But he said, it's it's those first 48, 72 hours where people often need the help the most. And we talked about this over the next several months as... That time from Gabe started to move on, and I was in kind of a, still a hard place. My girlfriend who I was with at the time left; she couldn't handle me, you know, not being me how I was before. And when Haiti rolled around in January of 2010, so wait a
0: minute—now you had two things you were grieving: you were grieving
1: the relationship and the loss of your best friend, right? Yes, yes, and it was really hard because I felt like I was doing that lost thing right, but she didn't know how to interact with me, with me being sad. Right. And so she was in that self-preservation mode, if you would say, and when we went to, so when Haiti happened, I remember I was in Costco friend calls me up and he says, Hey, I I think we should go. And I said, yeah, let's go. I'll, I'll go get supplies. And I'm thinking, what the heck do you get supplies for? something like that? For, you know, five of us to go over there. I got, you know, calorie dense food since we were going to be camping out in the middle of nowhere toilet paper for all of us and then we went off to haiti and going over there irene it was surreal haiti at the time was was i think the top three poorest countries in the world it was just and this was devastation beyond one's imagination and i remember where we were the first day a bus pulls in and this bus these some of these folks had been on this bus for over 12 hours trying to be bussed out of the city in the more populated areas where the devastation was so great to places where they were gonna start staging a recovery, And recovering. we were basically out in a field in the middle of nowhere. And this bus was overcrowded and people who were coming off that bus were so mangled and messed up. You know, some had bandages all over the face, had lost limbs, had bones were broken. Oh my God. Still bleeding. Some had been amputated by debris. Oh my God. And some had lost loved ones or didn't know if their loved ones were alive or safe or anything. And then if these people had any possessions, keep in mind already one of the poorest countries, if not the poorest country in the world, they disembarked the bus carrying at most a half full hefty bag of worldly possessions. They, at the time, none of the Haitians wanted to go inside of a physical shelter because they'd been through so much trauma, buildings collapsing all around them. And what happened was they started to construct these tarps out under, over trees and out in the open and they would use that as a campsite. And I'm there and you know, really focused on doing this, this goodwill work, but also in the back of my mind, I keep thinking about what had happened with Gabe, what had happened with my girlfriend, you know, how life was unfair. I didn't ask for this. I had thought I was a good person. What did I do to deserve this? And it's very much me, 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 which often I think loss can be. It's really easy for us to, to grasp onto that me part of it and talk about how the loss affected us, how we lost and then what we lost because of the loss. Well, one night about 10 o'clock or so, I'm walking across the field towards where my tent was, and I heard a noise. I look over, and there's a campfire going in the middle of the field, and around this field, there was about, you know, 15 to 20 patients that were, some of them were lying down because they're in hospital beds, some of them were sitting, and some were standing. And these people, I mean, they were clapping, they were singing, they were celebrating, they were giving thanks for life. And I watched them for about 10 minutes just and tears began to drip down my face watching these people who had lost (laughs) virtually everything. And and that's assuming they even had much to lose before, Mm -hmm. but were so mangled and messed up, who had at best a half full hefty bag of possessions, who many did not know if their loved ones were safe or healthy yet. And yet here they were outside celebrating for the very basic thing that would elude so many of us, celebrating the simple fact that they were alive And that they were blessed with the moment to be able to draw more breath into their lungs. And their heart was able to beat another beat. And watching that, I mean, it just, it transformed my life because I realized my gosh, yeah, has, have things been challenging for me this last six months? Absolutely. Was it hard for sure? Was it anything I asked for? Definitely not. And I am so blessed and have so much to be grateful for right now. And that, I have the choice of I can sit there and focus on my grief, or I can begin to focus on my gratitude, and that was one of the most profound and life changing moments for me right there in the middle field in Haiti.
0: That's that's fabulous, and not everyone would think about that and say, "Oh, this is presenting me with a choice, and I'm going to choose this." You know, that says a lot about you too, Jesse, and I know that your dad also unexpectedly died, and that led to a thousand challenge. Um, so please tell us about that and share a few of your favorite amazing things that you did during your thousand challenge with our grief and rebirth audience.
1: Yes. I, re- so I returned home from Haiti and my, and my dad had sent me an email and I thought, well, instead of emailing dad back, I'll call him. And I, ca- I talked, I called my dad. We had one of the best conversations we'd ever had. We talked for about 18 minutes and 33 seconds. And I remember hanging up the phone with him because I'd, I had this renewed sense of purpose in life coming back from Haiti. And I started to feel happy for the first time. And you know, seeing the light out at the end of the dark tunnel, I felt like I'd been in. Dad's, dad's phone call just was confirming it, that I'd turned this page. I, I was on, an, on a good path. And I remember just smiling after hanging up with that, that phone call. And the next morning, about 9 a.m., I see my mom's calling. And I got that sickening feeling in my stomach again that I had similar to Gabe. I picked up the phone, and my mom says, Jesse, your father's dead." Oh my, God. my dad had gone through a two-plus year battle with colon cancer. He had gone through the chemo, the treatment, the surgery, all those types of things, and and he did it at the urgence, the urging of the doctor saying, "You know, if you if you did the chemo too, you'd increase your chances of non of non." not having another recurrence of the, of the cancer by 20%. So it would go from 60 to 80%. And my dad was young and he wanted to have more time. Two weeks prior to his death, he had gone in for his annual checkup. The doctor looked him in the eye, shook his hands and said, congratulations, Mike, you're cancer-free. You've earned more time. And then two weeks after that, February 1st, 2010, my dad dropped dead. Was I, it a winter over- attack, or? You know, we never... So, My family never really had money. And at the time I was the only one that had, you know, any sort of, and I used basically I maxed out a credit card to be able to do a cremation for him. So we never did an autopsy, anything like that. I think from a conversation my mom had had with him, it sounded like he maybe had an aneurysm and I guess there wasn't, there was some research article around that time that was saying it wasn't uncommon for chemo patients to have gone through as one of the, the, what's the or not consequences but side effects could be something like that and you know who knows a host of other combinations but he he passed and I found myself again back in this place of spiraling and now what happened too with friends is friends want to be there love and support but also many of them are like wait you this has happened to you again like what how are you going through this much this sort of time so I really struggled for a while and then on a a random hiking trip with a couple friends several months later we were driving to Dave and Buster's of all places. Uh, I know that place. We yeah, have, I, I, New Jersey. yeah I had never been there before. It's a and it's I, uh
0: just for everyone listening it's a um, um, what do you call that just it's a it's um, like video games. Yeah, food, My grandsons love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: exactly yeah it's like that it's like a little playground for big kids that you can go right. and have beers and play video games at the same time. So there's something for everybody. And I had never been to one before. And I remember my friends asked me, he said, you never been to Dave investors? No. And they said, well, and, and we something else. And they said, well, have you, what else have you not done? I said, well, I haven't done this. And this conversation started. Well, you know, it'd be cool to try to do 10 new things you've never done, or wouldn't it be fun to try to do a hundred things you've never done before in a year? And I said, you know what I'm going to try to do in 2011, I'm going to try to do a thousand things I'd never done before. And they said, 1,000, why? And I said, because I think that it's, it's I want to prove to myself that I could. I needed something to focus on to pull me out of my focus, my obsession with grief and loss. I was obsessed over the losses I'd gone through. I was obsessed over how unfair life was. I was obsessed over the, you know, how much I felt like I had been screwed over by life the last year, and I needed something to shift it. And even more so, I wanted I knew in my heart, as sad as I felt, as much grief as I was experiencing, that dad and Gabe would want me to be happy. They wouldn't want my life to be a life where a dark cloud was falling over me because of them. They'd want my life to be a life where I smiled and I lived more fully because of them. That was really the essence of the thousand challenge. The intention was is to do at least, I had it, and so I made some rules. I had to do at least one new thing I'd never done before each day. Obviously you have to average close to three. This wasn't a bucket list year where you had to take off from everything. I had to do it within the confines of normal responsibilities. I had to work the same amount, everything else. But the the focus of it was really just about living, about getting out there and being intentional with my life because so many of us, so many of our days are byproducts of previous days. They're just habits. We're repeating. They say that the average person repeats something like 90% of their thoughts from the previous day. So essentially you think about that 90% of your emotional experiences, 90% of your thoughts, 90% of your days of your life are just repeats from the previous day. So if the day that preceded you was sad, you are probably have a sad day today. And that was such a powerful thing for me to consider because I thought, well, what would it be like if I really got intentional about living? It was one of the most transformative experiences of my life, Irene. At the end of 2011, I'd done over 1,020 things I'd never done before.
0: So now I got to ask you, you got to let us know, what are some of the outstanding things? Because I read your list Mm -hmm. and some of the stuff that you did, some of the stuff you ate, some of the experiences that you had, they were amazing. And uh, so
1: pick a few. My two favorites, Number, number two, was I did have, one of the travel ones I did is I tr- went to Orlando and saw the final space shuttle launch. That was absolutely incredible to be with a group, to, to be in the presence of the shuttle, to feel the shockwave, to cheer with everybody. It was it was absolutely amazing. It was only the second time in my life, 9-11 being the other, where I've actually experienced what I felt was the United States, where you had people from all over, all, nobody looked the same, life different license plates, but everybody was cheering for a common thing. And the second being, the number one though, by far was sunrise sunset day. I did this event where I had people from all over the world take a photo of the sunrise or sunset and share it on social media. And we ended up having over 30 countries participate in that first year. And that event has since turned into an annual event where every year on September 12th, wow. we have people from all over the world take a picture of the sunrise or sunset in honor of a loved one they've lost. And then I encourage them to do one of two things or both to either make a donation to a nonprofit or charity in honor of their loved one they've lost or to perform an act of kindness or a good deed in honor of that loved one they've lost. And to date, we've had, gosh, I think over 110 countries participate, tens of thousands of people from around the world. and We've raised hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point. That's marvelous.
0: How many people are in your Facebook presence with that? Because maybe some people in our grief and rebirth audience would like to become a part of that.
1: Yeah, it would be wonderful. I think we have across social media probably about one hundred twenty thousand people or so in the wow. various yeah. And what do they have to look up to join this face group, Facebook group? What Did it, they say my have- name in? And- yeah.
0: Jesse. Jesse Brisendine. Yep. Okay. And the- okay, they'll get all that information um with the podcast. God bless you. And I mean that. Thank you. You're welcome. Um as part of your thousand challenge, 1000 challenge, you had a conversation with a 100 year old. What did you learn from that conversation, Jesse? It was that the first hundred year old you'd ever talked
1: to. That I was aware of. Yeah. And well, you're going to make me think way back. It, you know, the thing I was most struck by with her. Irene is. And I think she was 101 or 102. Wow. At the time. When you're at that age, you don't have the luxury of time to waste. And what I mean by that is so many of us, again, going back to that notion of our thoughts, our days are on repetition. So many of our challenges, our dysfunctions, our problems, our self-obsessions, they come at the luxury of time in the sense of, we operate under the assumption that we're gonna have tomorrow. You know, what we don't do today, eh, it's not a big deal because I have tomorrow to get it done. You know, and that can be a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing and that maybe will well, the time The curse is, it's really easy to form a habit in that sense. But someone like her, you don't, nothing is promised. Nothing beyond the next moment is promised. And I just really saw her being present. I saw her being present. I saw her finding joy in the simplest of little things, little daily pleasures that most of us would take for granted. And for her, she often greeted these with wide-eyed wonderment, you know, and it was, it was those types of things that were most, that impressed upon me the most.
0: Wow, that's great. And I have another question for you. When faced with losses that rock us to our core and change us forever, we often find ourselves at a fork in the road. What life choices, Jesse, are represented by that fork in the road?
1: I did a Ted talk on essentially on healing from loss. And one of the key themes of that. And
0: by the way, his Ted talk is wonderful, everyone. And I, if, when you get on his website or whatever, I totally recommend you listen to it. It's marvelous.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And one of the key themes of that is, uh, is living our life as we move forward around honoring those we've lost. See, I think when we arrive at that fork in a road, we, we have a choice. Are we going to define the loss? Are we going to allow the loss to define us? Those of us who struggle and suffer indefinitely after loss are allowing the loss to define us. And usually there's a choice that's been made. I will never love again, be happy again, smile again. You know, I, I died that day. We have one foot in the past and one foot timidly on the doorstep of the future, but mostly not even in the present. Versus define the loss. And what I mean by that is I'm a firm believer in how we choose to live after we've lost someone we love is how we choose to honor them. And ultimately it's gonna become the legacy that they have in our lives. I think that one of the greatest and most sacred jobs that any of us can experience here on, here on earth is being assigned the job of being the custodian of the legacy of those who we've lost. I know for a fact, Irene, for me, the loved ones that I've lost, If they could be here and slap me in the face, if I spent any of my days sad, miserable, depressed at their expense, they would slap me in the face and probably kick me in the you know where. (laughs) But I know they would celebrate and rejoice if every time I thought of them, I made it a a point to savor a moment, to smile a little bit, to laugh a little bit more, to let stuff go, to experience my days a little bit lighter and a little bit more full of joy. And when we choose that, when we choose to honor those we've lost in that way, when we choose to live our life in a way that we know in our hearts they would want us to live, then that fork, when we drive at that fork and we have to make a choice of going forward without them in the way that we have in the past, you find that as you start to look ahead, you'll see this little guiding light out in the distance. And that guiding light is just them laying breadcrumbs at you to follow for you to live the life that you're supposed to live.
0: I can so relate to that, Jesse, I can so relate to that. And I really love the many topics you cover in your course, Healing from Loss. And probably there are people listening to us now who would be interested in that course. So for instance, how do you coach a person to shift the way he or she is feeling instantly What do you teach about the power of forgiveness, which is, there are so many misunderstandings about that subject. And what are some of these strategies you share for letting go of pain and emotional baggage?
1: Yeah, I I love that question. It's a big one. So let's try to, we'll try to break it up. Break it down,
0: right. So how do you coach a person to shift the way he or she is feeling instantly?
1: So what we focus on, we're always going to experience. Our, Our emotions are never happening by chance, even though they sometimes see that way. We are always creating our emotions by how we use our physical body language that we use and ultimately what we're focusing on. So the easiest example I can give everybody is this. If you're watching, I want you all to look closely at my hand. If you're listening, put your hand out in front of you and just look at your hand and just try to notice the lines on your hand. Or if you're looking at me, look at the lines on my hand really pay close attention to my hand or your hand. Notice your calluses the way certain lines move, maybe trace up your fingers and just really pay attention. And maybe you've never looked at your hand or especially my hand this closely before. And as you do this, notice that you're not really aware at all of how your bottom feels on the seat you're sitting in. But now that I've called your attention to your bottom, maybe you start to notice how the seat feels underneath you. And now that we're talking about your bottom and your seat, maybe you start to notice that your back's a little tight. and Maybe you need to shift your weight around a little bit to kind of loosen up. And maybe you start to feel a little tension in your shoulders that you want to relax. And as you're noticing that more, notice you've probably forgotten all about my hand. But my hand was still there, wasn't it? Just the same as the seat was, just the same as your body was. So in essence, what we're focusing on, we're going to experience it. When we have a a consistent focus on emotions like grief, depression, despair, guilt, anger, we're going to experience a lot of that. So to answer your question, how do we shift that is we begin to shift our focus. Remember, there is always several different realities available to us. There's a reality available that's focused on your hand, just the same as there's a reality available that's focused on the seat underneath you or how your back feels in your chair. There's a reality that's available that's focused on grief and loss and how it's affected you. And there's also a reality available of love and gratitude and celebrating all that you've gotten to experience and all that it's in front of you. So shifting now to forgiveness and how this can tie into this, Forgiveness is like.
0: Forgiveness is not forgiving the person if they've hurt you. It's more about you letting go
1: of. Absolutely. absolutely. Right. You don't have to forget. It's about for you. Exactly. It's like if we don't forgive, it's like getting in the middle of a pool on the deep end, chaining a concrete weight around your ankle and saying, "Okay, swim over there faster than Michael Phelps did when he won the Olympic gold, one of his Olympic gold medals. What's going to probably happen is you might take a few floundering, you know, flapping up the water and then you'll sink. Right. Well, inevitably the weight of not forgiving someone else is going to weigh you down so much so that you will find that your life, it is always feels like a struggle to keep your head above water. So what forgiveness is it's, it's unchaining, unshackling yourself from that concrete weight. It's unshackling yourself from the emotional responsibility or the emotional attachment you have onto the other person and what happened. You see, if we don't forgive, it's a very selfish endeavor. Selfish in the sense that we think we're punishing them, but really we're punishing ourselves and all the others that are in our life. And we are only seeing that person from one narrow-minded perspective, and that's ours, which is a horrible, which is a completely biased perspective because we have to believe X, Y, and Z to be true about them for us to justify not forgiving. The truth is, is none of us have ever walked a mile in another person's shoes, let alone five feet. We don't know what their life experiences were like. We don't know what their belief system or their values or anything else. Just the same as it's so easy for us to lose track of your hand or your, how you feel in the chair you're sitting in, it can be so easy to not recognize what another person's life experience is like and what they've been through. And so for us to forgive, it's really allowing ourselves to let go of that weight so that then we can truly go within and focus on ourselves. When we can get to a place and we can send love out to those we withhold it from, we open our hearts up to receive, I would say, a virtually unlimited supply of love that's available in the world around us.
0: Right. Well, so you can, but you could consider someone to be toxic, Jess, and you could like detach from them, but
1: still forgive them and let it go, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, there's a lot of people who I don't like. I have zero desire to ever hang out and be around but I choose to send love their way.
0: Right. I do the same thing. I do the exact same thing. And I had one other question about some of the strategies you share for letting go of pain and emotional baggage. Can you briefly go over one or two of those with us? Yep.
1: Again, when we go back to this idea of a focus in emotion, so emotions are, are created by us. Most of our emotional experiences are habitual. And let me give you an example. When we're driving in the car, we're driving along and all of a sudden we start to feel a wave of sadness and we think, oh my gosh, I'm so sad. And then we, we're searching for meaning. What can I attach this sadness to? Well, usually if we've just lost someone, we'll attach it to the loss of someone we've lost. You know, oh my gosh, I'm so sad because I just gave. I'm so sad because of this. I'm so sad because life has been so hard to me. Well, what actually probably happened there? was you were driving along and you had your window down just about two or three inches. There was a song on the radio that you weren't really paying attention to, but there was a note of music on it that was somewhat familiar to another song you'd heard from before. At that same time, you got a a whiff of a fragrance outside. You know, maybe it was food cooking at a restaurant. And that combination, that food, plus that note of music, and then plus maybe you saw a flower or a tree in your peripheral, All those things went together. And in the deep recesses of your unconscious mind, your mind said, this situation is most familiar to this. And it was something that happened maybe months ago, maybe years ago. And because our mind is always taking information in and trying to make what's the best representation and most familiar representation of reality for us, it spits out like a computer screen, like a calculator. If you put in two plus two, it's going to show up as four. The same thing is happening. Fragrance, sound, visual equals emotional experience. So when we know that that's going on to how we can start to release baggage, Mm -hmm. we can release baggage because we have the power to assign new meaning to each experience we go in. When we start to feel sad or we start to feel weighed down in the moment, we have the power to ask ourselves, how would I like to feel instead? We can start to embrace our emotions, not as executioners. You are sentenced to experience this emotion, but as messengers, this motion is here to teach you what would you like to learn from it and ask that if I feel sad right now, how would I like to feel instead? or if I feel sad right now why am I feeling sad and what deeper work do I need to do for me. The worst thing we can do is just accept it as finality, you know our unconscious mind often works in code and sometimes it doesn't take things as literally as we like. And it's up for us to become our own, you know, who are Nancy Drew and Dick Tracy and do some deep investigative work there, or Inspector Gadget, if that's more your cup of tea, (laughs) and really dig in deep and find out what is the bigger message there. And if we do that, we will find not only a tremendous freedom from some of those limiting beliefs and emotional baggage, but we will find a space of opportunity to fill our life with whatever we choose to fill it with.
0: That's great. And Jesse, is there anything else you want to share with our audience about your online course called Healing from Loss? Is there anything else you want to let them know before we go on to your stress relieving and anxiety reducing self-love training?
1: Yeah, it's a self-paced course. It's a great course for people who are, if six weeks or more removed from loss of someone, it is not a course for people to, you know, if you lost someone two days ago, It's not for you. I think that time right after loss is sacred time. You need to really go through and feel those deep feelings. But as you start to come up for air, as you start to re-engage in life, it's a great course to allow, to guide you on a path of healing beyond loss.
0: Okay. And it sounds great. And could you tell us about your stress relieving and anxiety reducing self-love training? That's another one people can certainly relate to. And speaking of self-love define self-love, sir. And what is its role in a person's life?
1: I think self-love is best explained with the, by the airlines. Anytime you go on an airplane and you get on and you're getting ready to take off, the the flight attendant comes on and says, in the unlucky event of an emergency, oxygen masks will deploy from the ceiling. Please secure your oxygen mask first before assisting other passengers. When we look at the graphics, we kind of, you know, maybe we don't pay attention, but if we really think about what the power of that is. Because most of us, we like to say, well, no, I would save my child or I'd save my partner. Or I'd save this other person before I'd save myself. The challenge with that is, is oxygen is finite. When there's When you're deprived of oxygen, you have a few seconds to be able to do something. Maybe you save your child. Maybe you save your partner. And then that's it. But if you take those first few precious seconds to secure your oxygen mask first, take care of yourself, love yourself enough to value yourself enough, what you have now is access to a virtually unlimited supply of oxygen that would allow you to help each and every person on that plane. So think about that for a moment. What self-love is, is it's about putting yourself first. It's about falling deeply in love with the person you see in the mirror, respecting that person enough. And in so doing, You will find that you have a unlimited well of energy, love, emotion to draw from, to then be able to better support others, to serve others, to share an experience with others. If you don't do that, you're always going to be that person gasping for air, looking for somebody else to come and save you. Maybe I get a little bit of an emotional hit from Irene, but what happens when Irene's not there, now I have to go off and try to find another one. But if you find it from self first, you'll have an unlimited supply.
0: Okay, so tell us about your stress relieving and anxiety reducing self-love training. Is that an online course?
1: Yep, it's an online course too. It's a course that, again, it's self-paced. You get a module every week for six weeks. And it's really just about going in and deepening your understanding of self, really getting a good understanding of why you do what you do, what drives you, what inspires you, and learning to fall in love with yourself. And also learning how to let go. Of some of the hurt and pain you may be holding on to that has inhibited you up to this point to really loving yourself a deep more deeply.
0: Now, some people feel guilty about loving themselves. How do they? How do you help them to get rid of that needless guilt?
1: Guilt's an interesting emotion. It also often comes up because we have this belief that in the past I made a choice, and there was a better, there was a different choice I should have made. Right. It's like we could sit here and talk right now and say, you know, Irene, boy, I'm so upset with myself. I feel so guilty for because I didn't invest in Apple 10, 15 years ago. I should have known then that was going to become the biggest company in the world. And I would have millions of dollars to swim around in. Right. So there's this idea with guilt that there was a there was a choice we made and there was a better choice available. Forgiveness becomes our best friend here where we have to allow ourselves to forgive ourselves for what we didn't know. And also to acknowledge ourselves for making the best choice we did at that time. And that's, that's number one. Number two, guilt is often associated with loss and grief. Because we will use guilt as a penance. We think that we should have done something differently, so we punish ourselves. Or we use guilt as a way to leverage pain. So the, the idea is the more pain I feel, the more d- closer I am to that person. Mm-hmm. Right? As long as I can feel pain, I still feel connected to them. And the end, it's a way to justify our love, right? The more pain I feel, this means the more I love. I remember when one of my friends was killed, people were shocked that I was able to smile and laugh less than two weeks after he had gone. And they were saying, "How you must not have cared about him as much because you're not still sad and depressed. And no, no, no. I, I cared about him so much that I'm choosing to be happy and joyous because that's what he'd want from me. So we have to be really weary that guilt is not love. Love is love. Guilt is guilt there's always a different choice that we can make that doesn't have to involve guilt.
0: Okay, and um, here's a biggie, Jesse. How can each of us create strong boundaries with the emotional energy drainers in our lives? Oh boy, I'll bet everyone listening is like emotional energy drainers. I've got a few of them. Oh, I can create boundaries with them. How do I do that?
1: I, I love this question. You're right, it is a biggie. When I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher named Mr. Sutherland, and Mr. Sutherland would give kids for doing well in a test, a cherry ball, and he also had this, this rare coin collection he'd let people examine if they did really well. One day he told us the story behind the rare coin collection. He was in school. Mm-hmm. He got a phone call that his house was on fire. He ran out of his classroom, jumped in his car, and in his words, he drove over 100 miles an hour to get home because the only thing he could think about was saving his wife and his dogs. Of course. He got home. His wife was okay. His dogs were okay. And he got there just in time to see the foundation fall through the ground. When the firefighter said it was clear, he went and began stumbling through the charred bricks and boards. And one of the few possessions he was able to save was his coin collection, that same collection we looked at. You know, in Southern California, it's kind of a joke, but on the freeways, it's not uncommon for people to cut us off. And then we return with the Southern California salute, which we put our arm up in there and we put one finger up. And I'll let you guess which one finger that is. Because we have this belief that they're trying to ruin our day, that they're not being considered of us, that they could have killed us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What Mr. Sutherland taught me that day was they're probably not even thinking about us. They may have just found out that their home was on fire that maybe they found out that their dad had cancer. Wow. And that's something very important to remember when we're talking about these types of things. We will often hold people emotional hostage who we don't even know. And in so doing, we create a narrative that is life limiting. I go to work after that. Oh, Irene, I'm having the worst morning ever. This guy cut me off and almost killed me, right? And then my, I use as a fuel to justify my unhappy and unproductive day. Versus Irene, gosh, I was just, you know, there's a tense moment on the road today. Somebody cut me off. I hope they're okay. I, I worried that they may have just found out their house was on fire.
0: What about people in your life who become emotional energy drainers? Jess. Yep.
1: So there's that's the first one. For the people who are physically in your life who are emotional generous, I used to struggle with my relationship with my mom because her and I thought and felt much differently. And we had our, I had my own unresolved childhood issues. And what I realized was, for me, again, I was holding my mom hostage to the image of how I thought she was supposed to be versus really learning to love her for who she is. And when I let that go, when I stopped comparing her against a, an idol of what I thought how moms are supposed to be, I was a child of the 80s, so I grew up watching The Cosby Show. You know, it seemed like such a great family. Obviously, and, I right, right. I, I saw screen was a little different than what was going on right. behind the scenes. Right. And But when I did that, I mean, when I let go of that and really started to learn to love my mom for who she was, see, the hardest thing to do is when we have drainers in our life, we focus on the the source of the drain, the things they do, the one or two behaviors they do, the one or two things they say. And we blind ourselves to the other possibilities that exist of maybe allowing ourselves to feel a little love, compassion, or empathy for them. And we allowed ourselves to do that, it gives us permission to release some of the emotional bond that we have that is the source of the drain. And it doesn't mean that we'll necessarily like some of these people, but what it does mean is it means we can create a space for some of them where we are now interacting with them differently. And because we're interacting with them differently, by default, they'll start to experience us differently too. So it's a snowball effect. Yeah. We're ping pong balls. You think about that. If we, if we just ping pong back and forth, the ball is always going to go the same way, but if we change the trajectory a little bit, guess what? They're going to have to change too. Yep. 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 I've experienced that. And how do you advise
0: people to let go of those net of that negative energy and the emotions from the past? So many people are so attached to their past and that's where it stops, which is what basically what, grief and rebirth podcast is all about we're like heal and move forward so for people who are having so much trouble doing that what would you advise jesse
1: one of the things that we unwittingly will stumble into after intense emotional experiences is we start to form our identity around those emotions we say we turn emotions into identities into physical things a hat we wear instead of i feel sad the emotion of sadness i am sad making a statement instead of i feel depressed i am depressed Right? Instead of I feel grief, I am grief, I am grieving. And, and that's a little bit different because it's more of an action. But you get the idea with that, right? Totally. Also, what will happen is as human beings, we, we do really marvelously at taking one moment and having that become the blanket representation of an entire time. We say we had a bad day, but really we didn't have a bad day. We had a couple of moments that didn't go according to plan. And if we step back and look at it from a broader perspective, we realize in any bad day, we actually had a lot of really good stuff that still happened. You know, we were able to breathe, we were able to see, we were able to hear, touch, smell, all of which if none of those things worked, it would dramatically alter how we even experience the day. So when it comes to just really allowing ourselves to let go of our past, we have to be willing to consider that there are other versions, other realities of the past that we haven't considered. And we have to also begin to invite in the best of back then into now as an example of loss. I think when we lose someone, there's three types of losses we mourn. We mourn the physical loss. We mourn the loss of our identity, who we saw ourselves, who we were with them. And more than anything, I would say we mourn the emotion, the how they made us feel or how we felt with them. The emotion one is the one we can really really makes some headway on in the present. Because if you think about, it, there was a time when you went to the grocery store, or maybe you were traveling this way and they traveled that way. You went west, they went east. You still felt love, even though you weren't physically connected. Love is still available. That connection of love, that, those beautiful emotions that you shared in life, they're still available in death. They just might show up differently, but we will block ourselves from experiencing them because we handicapped ourselves, we hijack ourselves in the present to the past, attach ourselves to the past, thereby limiting the experience of life because our identity is trapped in the past, our belief system about what's possible in life is trapped in the past, and then effectively we hold ourselves hostage for what we can experience now and going forward. So you
0: you become stunted, you can't move forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's what that's about. So now I have to ask you, because people who are watching us on YouTube are noticing you're wearing a t-shirt that says zero limits. So, are you why um, tell us why you're wearing that zero limits t-shirt, and what does it mean, and what strategy do you employ to help people do away with those limiting beliefs they have about themselves?
1: I think that our lives are always limited first in our mind. We decide our own limitations, and, and some of this, it, we can we can debate a little bit because many of us are operating with limiting beliefs that we learned as kids that were taught to us. And at some point, we have to be willing to take responsibility that while we may not have chosen or ex- wanted to be taught that belief as kids, we are still willfully choosing to practice it as adults. What I mean by that is our ability to experience love, joy, the good stuff in life, fulfillment, The limitation of that is designed by us. No one else, nothing else. It's designed by us. It's something that we are willfully choosing every day. We may not be aware of it consciously, but we are. So what zero limits for me is it's removing the mental and emotional limitations we put on our life. And it's removing the limitations we place on the levels of joy, love, happiness that we can experience in life.
0: So you're thinking that there should be zero limitations in our lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there could, I wouldn't say should, I think some, there's some limits that are healthy. There's some limitations are healthy. I would, I would always want somebody to have a healthy uh, limit or relationship with gravity and, and, you know, getting too close. They say every year, the, the growing number of people who die from selfies is increasing because people are getting closer and closer to edges. Oh, oh that's interesting. Yeah, I think there's, healthy, there's very healthy limitations and limits to have and respect, but when it comes to our emotional experience, right, life is really emotion the game of life we're all playing for, we're playing to, to be fulfilled ultimately, which is an emotional, an emotional experience. We don't have to place those kinds of limits on ourselves to limit our levels of love and joy. You know, some of us will, will limit our ability to experience love because we'll only allow ourselves to feel love with one person versus allowing ourselves to feel and experience love with a multitude of people. You know, Irene right now, like you and I barely know each other, but I'm, experiencing a sense of love being in your presence and feeling your energy and having this conversation with you and I allowing myself to have my heart filled by this and about your presence, your energy, your, your bubbliness, your fun, your, your shirt that matches the flowers behind you, even though I know <laughs> the hidden secret behind the flowers. <laughs>
0: And Jesse, I'm feeling the same way about you. I was just saying to everyone, to Jesse, before we started this interview, what a privilege it is for me to meet the most amazing, wonderful people like Jesse and to get to know them through the podcast and to share them with everyone. Absolutely. So true, Jesse. And so I have to ask you, your famous expression that is all over your website is carpe diem which I know means to seize the day, to enjoy life and live in the present moment without thinking too much about the future. So explain this to us, Justin, do you really believe that we should think about, not think about, make provisions for our futures?
1: Yeah, I absolutely think we should. I think we should make provisions and make considerations for the future. I think that's important and to seize the day it doesn't mean to ignore the future. It means to make the most of now. I think it's really important to plan. I think it's really important to have goals to work for, but not at the sacrifice of the making the most of your moment. I don't think our lives were designed to suffer, to miss out. I think most of us miss out because we're so stuck again in the past. It's It's really that, it's recognizing that And all of us listening and watching, we know this better than anyone because most of the people we lost, they probably never planned to die on the day they did or at the time they did. Most of us have a story of, you know, going on and living life just as normal as possible, doing something we'd done a hundred times and all of a sudden something different happened and someone we love died. For me, that's really what Carpe Diem is about. It's recognizing that nothing is promised. Time is not always guaranteed. It's planning for the future, having things to be excited about, making goals for your relationship, your health, your, all those types of things are important, and making damn sure that you allow yourself the gift of experiencing each moment in a great way, as great a way as possible. And that doesn't mean you're going out running a marathon every moment or you know flying to the moon or something like that. It just means that you allow yourself the simple joy and pleasure like Irene and I are right now. Of connecting with another human being because we could both show up and do this conversation however we want that's right right
0: and i want a, a blessing through technology you're there in california i'm here in new yeah. jersey and it's like
1: we're next door to each other yeah yeah I'm i just offer awesome. you a cup of coffee the things, <laughs> I get, I get every day you don't think about brushing my teeth when i brush my teeth uh-huh. i'll usually walk around and smile as i brush my teeth or think uh-huh. about like how cool is that i have this electronic toothbrush you know stuff like that it seems so simple It's silly, but it really is the stuff that brings deeper meaning to And that to me is the bigger, the bigger essence of what Carpe Diem really is. Okay. Smiling while you brush your teeth. uh,
0: (laughs) Ah, I'm all for that, Jess. And you have a happiness guide that has your 50 best tips for living a happier, more fulfilling life. You want to share a few of those fab tips with us?
1: Exercise. Exercise is critical. I think exercising healthy, you will find so much more joy in life with when you prioritize your health. And I would say smile. You know, the science says that the average adult smiles less than 10 times or something like that a day. To me, that's heartbreaking. We have these muscles on the sides of our face. And if you're to do more reps with them, we would find we'd be much happier. You know, even just sitting up in good posture. You know, if you sit in your best posture, it's physiologically impossible to frown. It's physiologically impossible to frown. You can even try it. Anybody listening, watching at home, sit up in your best posture, really sit up. And, and that's where you're raising your heart almost towards the ceiling and then try to frown. Just try to make yourself frown. You'll notice that your corners, going yeah, down. so we physiologically will put ourselves in postures that allow ourselves to start to experience emotions of sadness and whatnot. So stand up a little straighter, sit up a little straighter and you'll find you'll be a little bit happier too. That's cool. Um, and tell us all
0: the best ways for everyone in our Grief for Me birth audience to connect with you, Jesse.
1: Yep. And spell I, I'm it a- out,
0: spell it out, because Dine. I'm not sure that they're all going to get that easily.
1: Yeah, it's a mouthful. It's B as in boy, R-I-S-E-N-D-I-N-E, and you'll find me all over social media at at JesseBrisenDine. I'm on all the major platforms. Except I'm not TikToking yet. I just couldn't quite get into that. Okay. Instagram, <laughs> yeah. YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, all those. I'm on
0: yeah. all of them. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on them too. And uh, uh, they're amazing. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a baby boomer. So I'm still like a little intimidated by all the social media stuff. But here we go. And you of all people, what is your message about the importance of healing that you would like to share with our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience? Why should they not suffer through their lifetimes? Why, why should they go check out all these healers, including Jesse and find someone to help them?
1: I think that if we love our loved ones to the depth that we are justifying our hurt, we owe it to them to live life really in a way that we know they'd want us to live and honor them. If I'm going to, if I'm going to, feel the depths of grief, despair, depression, et cetera, hurt, pain, whatever that is, because they passed. I think I should also owe it to myself and them to feel the opposite, the highs of love, joy, happiness because of them. And that our lives are meant to be lived And that if they're not here physically, but we still are again, we're the custodians of their legacy and we have a choice. Do we want their legacy to be every time we think of them, we get sad and, and unhappy or do we want their legacy to be every time we think of them? We love, we laugh, we we smile a little bit more, and we tell stories about what incredible human beings they are and how they continue to inspire and interject life into our lives daily.
0: Yeah, they, they can that's that they can be absolute um, motivators for us to heal. Absolutely true. And what is your tip for finding joy in life, Jess? You've got so
1: many. You know, to be grateful would be number one. But number two, it's it slow down and be in the moment. Notice the simple things. I mean, I go for a walk in my neighborhood sometimes. And I remember when I started this practice, there was a, there was a plant that I walked by hundreds of times over the years, never really noticed it. But as I started to snow down, slow down and really pay attention to it, notice the life on it, notice the bees, notice other bugs that are on it, notice the colors, how vibrant they are, it, it was really quite incredible. There is so much around us right now that we could be grateful for, that we can slow down and really notice. And if we allow ourselves to do that, and if we allow ourselves to build our life on a foundation of gratitude, life will be filled, overflowing with joy.
0: You're absolutely right. I, so too, I just so totally agree with that. And I, I've lived that a lot. You know, Jesse, you are a dynamo. You, oh, you too, too. are. You're a dynamic transformational coach who has personally mentored nearly 2,000 people on their healing journeys after the loss of loved ones, motivated people to be better versions of themselves, empowered people to reach their full potential in life, and so much more. I have absolutely no doubt that there are now members of our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience who'd love to learn more about your spot-on coaching that can lead to transformation and rebirth in their lives. Thank you, Jesse, from my heart for this inspiring and uplifting interview filled with so many wise, important insights. And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, as I like to say. To be continued, many blessings and bye for now.